Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Candace, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, What are Generic Drugs? Understanding their Role in Cancer Treatment. And this is a question that many of you have been asking about, and so we've decided to offer you this program, and we're delighted to have so many of you on the call today. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other organizations, and it really is because of that collaboration and your interest in the program today that we have over 593 participants on the program today. So there are a lot of you on the program, although you can't see each other, there are lots of you, and you come from all over the United States, and we also have international participants from Argentina, Canada, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So you really are from a bit all over the world. It's a bit of a global call as well. Today's program is supported by MyLAN, and I really want to thank them for the support of this program. It's an important program for us to offer, and we're really delighted to have the support. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, really the best of the best, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Richard Grawla, and Dr. Grawler is Professor of Medicine, Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Jacoby Medical Center. And Dr. Grawla is going to set the pace for today's program and start with an overview and definition of generic drugs, the difference between generic drugs and brand-name drugs, are generic drugs as effective as brand-name drugs in cancer treatment, the difference between generic drugs and biosimilars, in current and future directions. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Bala. Well, thank you so much, uh, Carolyn. It's a, a real pleasure uh, to have the opportunity to participate. And in addition to introducing and giving an overview about generic drugs, I'm really pleased to share the program with such an excellent panel. So the topic of generic drugs as part of cancer care is relevant to all of us. The reason being that pharmaceutical products or drugs apply to anti-cancer agents, supportive care agents such as medicines to prevent side effects or lessen pain or fight infections, and also medicines for all the other possible issues that we may have such as high blood pressure, diabetes, arthritis, and many, many others. As such, the availability of generic drugs, the safety of generic drugs, effectiveness of generic drugs, and confidence in generic drugs are all issues that affect nearly everyone and every family with cancer. And that brings us to some clear questions. What are generic drugs, and maybe what are they not? And even what are drugs themselves or medicines? Of course, drugs are substances meant to treat a condition or problem. In times before the 20th century, most effective drugs, and there really weren't very many, had been discovered by observation. So quinine from a tree bark could prevent or treat some forms of malaria, or leaves from a foxglove plant could help with heart failure. But there had to be reasons why these substances helped and why they could also be toxic. And that led to the field of modern therapeutics. The more we learned about how the body works normally, how infectious agents harm us, and how cancers grow or escape detection, the more effective and safer our medicines have become. 
Knowledge of the chemistry of everyday functioning of the human body is the basis of physiology, and this can lead to understanding appropriate treatment when the functioning is not quite right. This knowledge guides the development of agents or drugs to try to correct abnormal functioning when illness occurs. Again, we do best when we understand how normal functioning occurs, what goes wrong with important pathways when we have illness, and how we can correct or enhance the proper functioning. All this is true in cancer treatment and supportive care in people with cancer as well. So where do effective drugs come from? Often medicines can be synthesized or constructed in the laboratory because they're chemicals. Pharmacologists and medicinal chemists are able to produce many medicines in special laboratories to make large amounts of these agents and to do so under the safest and most sterile conditions. This class of agents, these classical drugs, often can be totally or largely synthesized in the laboratory. And this is how so very many medicines are made, again, to treat uh, irregular heart rhythm, pain, depression, so very many conditions that are common to many of us. I think it's fair to say there are three main types of medicines today. One type can be described as biological agents or biopharmaceuticals. These are an increasing part of modern medicine and of modern cancer care. They typically are highly complicated both in their structure and in their production, and they're not straightforward chemicals, unlike what I discussed a few minutes ago. Producing a highly complex protein or antibody by biologic means is quite different than synthesizing a small molecule medicine in the laboratory. These medicines do not have generic forms. So this is how the concept of biosimilars or follow-on biologic agents came about. Once the original patent for a biologic agent expires, other companies may produce a biologic product that functions in a way that is nearly identical to the first agent. The biosimilar has to demonstrate that it performs the same function as the original agent when the agents are compared. Of course, this is an arduous and detailed process that the FDA in the U.S. or Health Canada in that country or the EMA in Europe as examples have set forward. A new and growing class of medicines are now called complex non-biological agents. These may be agents that have things like nanoparticles and others, and there aren't too many of these drugs, and generally these agents do not have generic forms either. It is likely that follow-on agents for this class will be treated more like biosimilars. However, the majority of drugs by far are classical drugs, which are synthesized in the laboratory and their structures are fully known as with any chemical. The main advantage of generic forms of these drugs is that they can be less expensive and often much less expensive. And at the same time, they can work just as well as the original brand name drug. Dr. Saltz will address this important area of cost issues as well as other areas. Examples of such classical generic drugs include many anti-cancer chemotherapy drugs, and most of those drugs, most of these drugs, are available as genetic, generic drugs, such as cisplatin or carboplatin, methotrexate, 5-fluorouracil, doxorubicin, also called adriamycin, vincristine, and many, many others. Also, many supportive care drugs in cancer 
are classical chemical agents and can be generic, such as the anti-nausea agents ondansetron, also called Zofran, or palinocetron, also called aloxy. And in some countries, <laughs> that's available generically, in other countries, not. <clears throat> the important anti-nausea medicine, a prepotent, can be generic, but a generic form is not now available in the U.S. <clears throat> so every drug has two names, the generic name, which may be undansetron, and the trade or brand name, Zofran in this case. And there could be many other manufacturers that have their own brand names. Again, these chemical drugs are synthesized in the laboratory, and they make up the majority of medicines available today. When someone invents such a chemical, and it is shown to be safe and effective, the individual or the company obtains a patent and the right to sell the agent. With a patent, that company has the exclusive right to produce and market that very agent for a period of years, often 20 years, and sometimes there, there are ways that they work to extend that patent. Other but different drugs working in the same way might be able to be made during that patent life to treat that condition, but only the patent holder can make the very specific chemical. When the patent expires, since the structure is known, others can make copies of the drug, and these are called generics. Before selling the generic copies, the new company must, in the USA and in many countries, pass many tests as determined by the FDA or other regulators in other countries. In addition to having extremely similar structures, these agents must be shown to be handled by the body in a very similar way. So clinical tests or pharmacologic studies are done with the generic candidate drug. As a general rule, the generic has to be shown to act at least 90% the same way as the original drug with only a narrow margin for any difference. Such variation is not considered to be clinically meaningful. Even in drugs with a narrow window of activity and side effects, such as the blood thinner warfarin or Coumadin, clinical trials have shown that generics can be safely and effectively used. A little more than 25 years ago, there was a bit of a scandal in the U.S. regarding generic drugs, but this was taken as a wake-up call by the FDA, and they've been very dedicated to assuring the quality of our generic drug supplies, and this is great for all of us. An issue today can be that even when drugs are theoretically available as generics, there may be only one generic or maybe even none on the market, and this becomes problematic because we have to wonder about cost savings when there's only one generic or there's no cost savings if there's no generic. And there also can be shortages of drugs. If a generic drug can perform in this very similar way, that must be demonstrated, it is considered to be just fine for clinical use and is regarded as being able to give the same results as the brand name drug. Certainly in my family and in my practice, I have confidence in a generic product, product once it has passed rigorous testing. I believe that taking advantage of quality generic medicines is an important way for all of us to be economically smart in all of medicine and especially in cancer care where economic factors certainly are in the forefront of our minds, especially if we can get really good drugs that are generic, which is what we see. 
Now, I will be particularly interested to hear the comments of my colleagues in the following presentations, and we'll look forward next to Dr. Leonard Salt's comments when he addresses us. I'll now hand the program back to uh, Dr. Carolyn Messner. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Grawler. That was outstanding and really excellent as always, and really, really gives us all a, a perspective on uh, the role of generic drugs and, and, and how important they are. And our next speaker is Dr. Leonard Saltz. And then Dr. Saltz is Chief Gastrointestinal Oncology Service, Head Colorectal Oncology Section, Chair Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and he's also a Professor of Medicine, Law Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Saltz is going to address managing the costs of treatment with generic drugs, the benefits of generic, of generic drugs, how are generic drugs approved, the role of clinical trials, and key questions to ask your healthcare team about generic drugs in the treatment of cancer. It's now my pleasure to turn this program over to Dr. Saltz. Well, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate the chance to talk with everybody today. Uh, let me start by reemphasizing some of the really important points that Dr. Grala just hit. Uh, the first is that uh, generic drugs as a concept is something that uh, we've become very comfortable with. It's been uh, in practice for many decades, and it is really part of the standard practice of medicine in general and oncology in particular. Um, uh, I, I vote with my feet on two levels as far as generics. Um, uh, as a family person, uh, my wife and I are both doctors, and we have three uh, daughters uh, who are the most important thing in the world to us. When any of us need medicines, when generics are available, we use them in our family, uh, which I think gives you a sense of what our confidence level is. Uh, as the chair of the Pharmacy and Therapeutics Committee at Memorial Sloan Kettering, I can tell you that our, former, our formal policy uh, as an institution is we only use generics whenever a generic is available. So uh, all of the patients being treated at our institution are receiving generic medications whenever we have the option to offer that. As Dr. Grawlis said, when a drug is first invented or developed by uh, a pharmaceutical company, it is an invention, and inventions have a patent, and the patent uh, gives that company the exclusive right to sell that drug, um, or that invention, if you will, um, for a period of time. During that period of time, there are no generic equivalents that are available, and the only thing that we can offer to patients is that brand name drug. By the time that the patent expires, uh, companies that are in the business of producing generic drugs have had the opportunity to uh, develop the process, get it reviewed and approved through the Food and Drug Administration, uh, and as has been said, it's a very uh, careful and rigorous process to assure uh, both the effectiveness of the drug and the safety of the drug for patients, and then that drug can be marketed. Um, the major advantage, of course, is a matter of bringing down the price. And anyone who's dealing with a cancer diagnosis is confronted with the reality that medical care in general and cancer care in particular is very expensive. And uh, we, have, we have come to learn that uh, the, the price of the care is a major concern to the majority of patients undergoing cancer care. And anything that we can do to control the cost without compromising the care is critically important. In that respect, um, as I've said uh, on, on other uh, uh, venues and calls where we've discussed the issue of, of, of care for the patient, 
it's extremely important to understand that when you're being taken care of by a doctor or other healthcare provider, every topic is open for discussion as you wish. And so just as you will talk about personal issues in your body with a doctor, uh, you need to feel comfortable talking about the very personal issue of financial concerns. It's something that in our society we've tended to be very, very private about and uncomfortable about. But if a doctor uh, can't know all of your concerns, uh, he or she can't provide the best care. For example, I may prescribe a drug for somebody, and that drug may actually have a, a very expensive uh, copay or coinsurance such that the out-of-pocket cost for the patient will make it impossible for that person to take the drug in the way that I've prescribed. If I don't know about that, I can't address the problem. I may have the alternative to use a different drug or a drug that has a generic equivalent that's substantially less expensive, and and, and uh, a doctor knowing uh, that that is uh, a concern or a problem or a patient will lead to exploring of those possibilities. Different doctors have different awareness of this problem, uh, and, and, and uh, obviously the, you need to have uh, uh, open communication with whoever is taking care of you, uh, but it's always a good idea, I feel, to put whatever concerns you have on the radar for that doctor to be aware of. Um, some time ago, there were advertising campaigns that were focused at doctors trying to convince them that they were doing best by their patients if they used the branded drugs. This was simply a business decision by the companies. Um, I think that doctors over time have come to understand uh, that the generic drugs are, in fact, uh, effectively the same drug uh, at a lower cost and that that does matter to their patients. Um, we can expect that as biosimilars start to become available in practice more and more, that there will be some uh, pressures, financial pressures, uh, for the more expensive drugs to be prescribed. And over time, I think, we'll develop a, a, a comfort level with the biosimilars. Uh, my interpretation of biosimilars is that uh, the rigorous standards that the FDA applies are in fact extremely rigorous, and by the time the FDA is satisfied that, to use their terminology, there is no clinically meaningful difference between the biosimilar and the, the parent compound, I'm perfectly comfortable recommending the biosimilar uh, to, uh, to my patients, and that, in fact, is what I would be using. Um, so uh, I think that when we talk about the idea of clinical trials, um, these are the basis for how drugs get on the market and get into our clinical practice. When we're talking about clinical trials in cancer care, it's usually a matter of comparing one drug to another. Um, and in clinical trials, you will find that if a generic equivalent is available on the market, there's no specification within the trial as to whether that needs to be used or not. So, for example, if we look at the area that um, I focus on most, which is uh, treating patients with colorectal cancer, uh, two of the most, or three of the most important drugs we use are 5-fluorouracil, or 5-FU, irinotecan, or oxaliplatin. 
These are drugs that have all been around for a long time. In fact, 5-fluorouracil is going to turn 60 years old next month, and it's still one of the most important and effective drugs that we have. These drugs, when they initially came out, were branded drugs. There was only one company that was legally able to produce them, and the cost was quite high. Now they're all available in a generic version, and as a result, there's competition in the uh, in, 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 in the, the field for price, and that brings the price down. That's an advantage for patients. Uh, to put it in perspective, uh, drugs such as oxaliplatin or arenotecan um, would be in the range of $10,000 per patient per month when they were in the branded situation. And now that they're generic, it's a few hundred dollars per month. So we're really talking potentially very, very substantial differences. And it would be unfair, I believe, uh, once those cost savings are available, not to utilize them and pass them on to our, our patients. And so that's why these have become so widely used. Now, the, um, uh, the concept of doing a clinical trial is comparing uh, one way of approaching uh, a patient's uh, illness with a, a newer, hopefully better way, usually that may involve a comparative trial where we'll take a standard treatment and offer patients a, a, a comparison between the standard treatment and the standard treatment plus a new or experimental drug. Within the context of those trials, the standard treatment will involve uh, the generic drugs uh, just as much as it will the, the branded drugs because they are regarded as effectively the same thing. So uh, the, the key questions that I think one wants to think about uh, from, from a practical point of view, it's perfectly appropriate to discuss with your healthcare provider. Um, are they routinely using generics when they're available? Uh, and uh, if not, my advice is request that they do because I, I, I simply do not believe there is a reason to um, expend more money uh, for what is effectively the same product. Uh, I don't believe there's any basis for concern that a generic drug is, is either less safe or less effective. Um, and uh, if you do have such concerns, talking with your healthcare provider about that may, uh, may, may be useful to you. Um, and ultimately, if one encounters a situation where a doctor has prescribed a particular drug and it's only available in an expensive, uh, non-generic form, if that is going to be a problem for you in terms of the costs that you are incurring, a very fair question to the doctor is, what other reasonable alternatives exist that may have generic equivalents? Because sometimes there are a number of reasonable and effective ways to approach a person's cancer, and some will have generic alternatives and some will not. And having a discussion with your doctor about the relative uh, uh, options and, and risks and benefits involved can be extremely useful. So I hope those comments are helpful to you, and I hope they have clarified some of the questions. I'm going to stop now, and uh, after uh, the next two presentations, we'll all be available to answer any questions that we haven't covered. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Saltz. It was really outstanding as well, wonderful, and uh, very informative, and uh, very important messages I hope that everyone heard about 
the important role that um, generic drugs are playing in, in terms of containing costs and in terms of being a very effective way to treat many cancers. So that's something that you'll hear more about and, and have a chance to ask about during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Mr. Jeffrey Betcher. Mr. Betcher is a pharmacist and he's manager at Cancer Center Pharmacy, assistant professor of pharmacy, Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. And Mr. Betcher is going to address the role of a pharmacist in filling your prescription for generic drugs, planning ahead, the lead time in refilling your prescriptions, weekends, travel and holidays, computer, tablet, and phone reminders, including emails, texts, and apps, and reminders from your pharmacy and pharmacist. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Mr. Betcher. Thank you very much, Dr. Messner, uh, and it's my pleasure to speak with such an expert group of, of, of physicians here today. Uh, they've done a great job of, of reviewing the importance of generic drugs, uh, especially in those uh, in the role of cancer therapy treatment. The areas I'd like to focus on, as, as Dr. Messner's uh, already brought up, are the role of the pharmacist in filling your prescription for the generic drugs first off. Um, I think we've, Dr. Saul's touched on communication, and pharmacist is, communication is very important, and, and we're a big part of communicating with our patients. Uh, what you have to, what's important to understand, I believe, and has been brought up a little bit already, is the use of, of generic drugs within our institutions. I believe Dr. Saul's mentioned their institution utilizes generics um, whenever possible, and that's part of their P and, uh, pharmacy and therapeutics committee policy, and that's very similar to our policy here at Mayo Clinic. Um, we have many times on the injectable drugs, uh, we have the generic options, and we look at our contracting and we look at, at the, the generics that are out there available and the brand name products, and depending upon contracting, we're able to get you as, as the patient the best price on these drugs, and generics oftentimes are the drug that comes in with the, the lower price. So the job of the pharmacy is really to cl clearly communicate to the patient, especially in the retail setting, when there is a generic option, suggest that generic option to help them with the cost savings. I think many insurance plans right now um, guide you to select the generic product and many times have a more preferential copay for you as a patient if you use the generic option. And this makes a lot of sense when you, you think about what both Dr. Grahl and Dr. Saltz mentioned about the integrity of these generic products. I think it's important to recognize um, as well that these products do go through the same good manufacturing practice regulations from the FDA as the brand products, and that is very important. I think as a pharmacy, it's very important to stock quality generics in our practice and to never just assume that the generic that we currently stock is going to continue to be the lowest price option. We constantly have to be looking at is there a new generic vendor that's entered the market? As we've already heard many times, the first generic is a slight price decrease, and subsequent generics with each additional entering the market reduces the price even further through competition. So it's very important that your pharmacy to keep an eye on this closely, and I know in our infusion clinic here, we monitor that on a weekly basis. As far as the pharmacist filling your prescription for generic drugs, it's very similar to any other drug. As a matter of fact, approximately 70% of drugs that are, are uh, dispensed through a retail pharmacy are in fact generic drugs, so the vast majority. We, we look for uh, patient allergies. We check for drug-drug interactions to make sure there are no interactions that may cause unwanted toxicity, 
uh, or an interference in another drug that may reduce its activity. So that's something that's, that's always going on with your pharmacist and then a discussion with your provider uh, if necessary. Patient education is becoming more and more important as we get more and more complex medications that come to market. Um, the pharmacist's role here is to not only educate you uh, and your caregivers on the medication itself and some of the, the effects that you could see, but also to assist you with being as adherent as possible to the medication, taking it as directed by the provider's orders and making sure that you're aware of any potential side effects that you could have and how to manage your medications to get the most out of them. Specialty pharmacies have recent and over the last 10 years come into being, and some of you that are getting some of the newer oral cancer therapy agents may be very familiar with these, others may not. Specialty pharmacies are designed for those newer agents that are very expensive medications. Many of them don't have generics available yet at this point, um, but in the future will have those opportunities as well. There are also medications that require perhaps a little more follow-up. Uh, you want to monitor them for the adherence and persistence. Adherence being if a physician writes a prescription for a medication to be taken one tablet twice a day for 21 days, that you're being adherent, taking it every day, twice a day as ordered. The persistence is, are you persistent in following the orders through the entire prescription, through the entire 21 days? So if it was an antibiotic and you started feeling better after 10 days, but it was actually prescribed for 14 days, did you stop taking it when you felt better? In that case, you would not be persistent, and persistence is, is as important as adherence. Many programs are available for this that involve pharmacies, from a phone call to a text to different apps that are out there that can help you with this. I would also mention that as people struggle with adherence to medications, uh, you can look for adherence aids that are out there available to you. There are pill reminders, pill boxes. There are actually electronic pill boxes that have a, uh, a time clock on them that will open the pill box when it's a particular medicine is due. They also have a vial cap that's available if you have a, a lot of difficulty with remembering medicines that will actually document when you open and close the pill bottle and has a little alarm on top of it as well. So there are many different options that you could talk to your pharmacist about to help you to make sure that these important medications that are important to you are taken and taken on time so that you can maximize the effects of these drugs. As far as planning ahead and lean time for re refilling prescriptions, I think this is a very important uh, subject to discuss and one that many of my patients when I'm in clinic bring up to me, uh, especially when it comes to travel and holidays. Uh, I think lead time in refilling prescriptions is very important. Uh, as, a, as a patient and caregivers, I think it's important to take an investment in that and understand that you have a role in making sure that you have your medications when you travel uh, and don't put yourself in a position where you're struggling to find a provider to write a prescription when you're on, on uh, vacation. Um, many insurance companies will allow refills seven days in advance. Some others through mail order may be you may be able to get them 10, 20 days in advance, but most prescriptions are available to refill approximately seven days in advance. I think it's important if you have a long trip planned that you plan ahead and contact your insurance company to request early refill authorization if necessary. 
It's also important to understand your local pharmacy's hours of operation. Understanding that even if you are traveling and you find a pharmacy that happens to be open on a holiday or a 24-hour large chain, if they're not able to contact your local pharmacy to transfer the prescription, they won't be able to get a prescription filled for you there without a new prescription from your provider. So very important to plan ahead. This is also a little more important with drugs for controlled substances. Those are the supportive care meds uh, that we've discussed a little bit, the pain medications, the opioid class, uh, perhaps lorazepam, which you may be familiar with for nausea, anxiety, and other drugs like pregabalin or Lyrica, which are used for uh, pain. Travels and holidays, I would ask you to consider to use a large chain pharmacy. They generally are open 24 hours on holidays and are probably most likely to be able to take care of your needs in that case. Always make sure to pack all of your medications with you. Uh, it's always good to take a little more than you expect just in case there would be a potential flight delay or a change in plans while you happen to be visiting a different location. Another thing that's very important, especially for us here in Phoenix where temperatures recently reached nearly 120 degrees, is appropriate storage of these medications when you travel. Uh, keeping these drugs in a car at high temperatures for even short periods of time could be detrimental and it's always good, especially with refrigerated medications like insulin, to have those packaged appropriately and check with airlines before traveling with things like with, with these medications. Lastly, I'd just like to talk a little bit about computer and technology. I think it's very important to consider technology in helping you with your medication adherence. Um, some of the most important things here are your computer, your tablet, and your phone. These things have calendar alerts, reminders, your local pharmacy may even have opt-in services for text or refill alerts to remind you when it's time for a refill and when it will be due and have it picked up or available for pickup at your convenience. Often overlooked is the help of a caregiver. Please never forget the significance of having a caregiver, a significant other, family, friend, uh, especially if you're struggling or maybe just having a bad day. These folks being familiar with your medication adherence plan bringing them in can, can work wonders. So to close, I think it's been discussed throughout my presentation and others, consider the, the use of your pharmacist, refilling text, email, or phone calls from your, your uh, pharmacist. Always talk to your pharmacist. Dr. Saltz mentioned that, that every question should be open to discussing to your healthcare provider and team. The pharmacist is no different. If we don't know how you're experiencing problems, it's hard for us to help you. So often lines, pharmacists are in the front line and available for discussion. Please don't hesitate to ask questions as needed. With that, I'll turn it back over to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Mr. Betcher. That was outstanding, really. Very comprehensive and really giving people lots of very important tips about how to work with their pharmacists to be sure you have your medications on schedule and you can take them on schedule. That's really important. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Thank you. And our next speaker is Ms. Stacy Lewis. Ms. Lewis is an oncology social worker, and she's program coordinator here at Cancer Care. And Ms. Lewis is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Ms. Lewis. Thank you, Dr. Messner. I'm also very happy to be part of this program today. 
I wanted to speak just a little bit about the importance of creating a support network as part of your care and the ways that cancer care can be a part of your support network. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Our programs include things like individual counseling, which we provide face-to-face -face in our New York City area, as well as over the telephone nationwide, support groups, which are also provided face-to-face, -face, as well as over the telephone and through the internet, educational programs, practical help, assistance navigating the healthcare system, as well as some limited financial assistance. And all of our services are provided by licensed master's level oncology social workers, and they're completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer impacts not just the person, but also his or her family and friends. We're trained to help patients and caregivers tackle the problems that accompany this disease, such as financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, and of course, the psychological impact. Adjusting to and finding ways of coping with your diagnosis in all of the areas that I mentioned is such an important part of your healing process. Again, can be as well as the entire support network. We want you to know that asking for help, whether you're a patient, caregiver, family member, or friend, by doing things like joining a support group or by contacting a social worker, those things are really signs of strength. You do not have to walk this path alone. Joining a support group can be a way to connect with others who are going through similar situations and are likely experiencing similar problems. Individual counseling can provide you a space that is just yours to voice any concerns and navigate any of the issues I mentioned earlier. And these connections can help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer as well as their caregivers frequently experience. Feeling well emotionally can help you better deal with your diagnosis and treatment. I did want to just share that at this time, Cancer Care offers a variety of our online support groups, both for individuals in treatment. We have many diagnosis-specific groups as well as some general groups. We have groups for individuals who are post-treatment as well as a variety of groups for caregivers, which, as the doctors mentioned, are also really an integral part of your network. So if you're interested in any of Cancer Care services, please call our HOPE line at 1-800-813-4673 or visit our website, which is www.cancercare.org. And our website is very comprehensive. You'll find a lot of information not only on our supportive programs, uh, but as well as our publications and things like ways of coping as you move forward. And on our website, you can also register for any of our future education workshops and those online support groups that I mentioned. There's been a lot of information in today's program, and there can be a lot of information for you to digest. Our social workers can help you understand what this means for you and your loved ones. If you have any questions about today's workshop or any of our free services, please don't hesitate to contact us. And as I said, please remember that you are not alone and that Cancer Care Services are here to help you and your family. Thank you for your attention, and thank you, Dr. Messner, for the opportunity to speak today. Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Lewis. That was outstanding and wonderful and very informative for everyone to know about these services that they can access from Cancer Care. And now we have time for questions. We actually have a lot of time for questions. I'm going to ask Candace to bring all of our speakers on board and also to explain to everybody how to queue up for questions. We're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get to your questions at the very end, I will give you information about how to get questions answered going forward. Okay. Candace? Thank you. 
Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star, then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Once again, to ask a question at this time, you may press star 1. So the question from one of our online participants. Um, so uh, I'm going to actually give this question to Dr. Grawa to start with. Um, are biosimilars the same as generic drugs? Are they safe? Are they cheaper? Okay. Well, thank you for the question. It's a complex one. Uh, so they are not the same as generics because they're made, so for instance, if it's a monoclonal antibody, a biologic, the way of making it is not to duplicate the molecule, but to duplicate the process by which a monoclonal is made or to be very similar. So it has to uh, perform clinically in the same way as the original, the biosimilar does. And so, as Dr. Saltz mentioned, we have a lot of confidence in these highly tested biosimilars for the same uh, indication. Okay, number one, uh, are they cheaper? They're usually 20 to 30% cheaper. So these are generally expensive drugs, but they are, uh, but, uh, and so 20 to 30% is meaningful, but it is not that they're enormously cheaper. They're very reliable in, in the experience in Europe where there are more biologic uh, biosimilars available. And, uh, but where these agents are available, um, uh, most physicians who have looked uh, carefully at it, uh, based on the very careful testing, uh, have confidence in these agents. And, uh, uh, and I think Dr. Saltz uh, uh, echoed exactly the same. Excellent. And does anyone want to add anything to that, Dr. Salt or Mr. Betcher? No, I think it's been nicely uh, outlined. Um, you know, the, the, there are uh, you know uh, technical important differences to understand in terms of the biosimilar. Maybe to explain it further, uh, uh, you know, uh, a way that I never thought about it until somebody pointed this out, and then it makes perfect sense. A biologic agent by definition, is an agent that's made by a living thing. It's not manufactured in a laboratory by synthesizing chemicals. It's made either by a bacteria or a cell culture. Um, it's a complex enough structure that you can't take a test tube and figure out how to make it there. And so it's a matter of, of basically having living cells that have the gene that codes for what you're trying to make. And therefore, when you make the biosimilar, you may not have uh, exactly the same, uh, uh, you know, down to the last uh, atom structure, but it's going to be extremely similar and it's going to have been extensively tested to make sure that there's no meaningful difference in terms of what it does for you. When someone says, well, how do you know it might not be just a little bit worse, I would turn the question around and say, I don't. I also don't know that it might not just be a little bit better than the parent compound. There's no reason to uh, anticipate one way or the other. So for all practical purposes, I'm regarding it as the same. Uh, generic is straightforward. It's the same chemical structure. You could draw it out 
uh, on, a, on a relatively uh, straightforward chemical diagram, and you could uh, test it and, and demonstrate that it's exactly the same chemical. And if I could just add uh, one thing more to that wonderful explanation. So the FDA, the regulatory agencies, require this kind of testing that shows that the um, that the similarity of the drug in terms of what it does and how it's handled by the body, depending on whether it's a biosimilar or a generic uh, drug, are so similar within a tolerance that um, uh, there's no reason to suspect a lower activity. Thank you. Okay, excellent. And we, um, we have another question from our online um, participants, um, and I'm going to give this question to, um, to Dr. Saltz. What should I do if I am doing well on a drug and my doctor suggests a generic drug? If you are doing well on a drug and you happen to be on a brand name and the doctor tells you that that drug is available as a generic equivalent and that that would save money, um, I would be very comfortable saying to you, switch to the generic drug. I would have no hesitation about that whatsoever. Um, if uh, we're talking about switching from one drug to another, in other words, it's not a generic of the same drug that you're on, and the doctor says this is another way of approaching the problem, then I think you need to have a discussion about, well, what would you perceive as the relative benefits or risks, and uh, go from there. But uh, I, I would have no hesitation switching from the brand version of a drug to an available generic. Anyone else want to add to that, Dr. Growler or Mr. Well, I agree entirely with 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 Dr. Saltz, and uh, so there's every reason to have confidence. And uh, you know, if we can get a a good deal uh, for something that works well for us, because we don't want to sacrifice efficacy uh, or effectiveness. Uh, let's do it. And that's why both Dr. Saltz and I mentioned that in our families, we use generic drugs. Thank you. And we have another question from one of our online participants. And I'm going to give this question um, uh, to um, Dr. Growler. Does the change of ingredients in generic drugs lend to more side effects? So Dr. Growler, if you could Okay. That. So actually, if you have a generic drug, there isn't a change in the ingredient. Um, so these are chemicals, as we've discussed, they're made in the same way, and uh, so a quality generic, which is what we have in in the countries that we've been discussing, um, is has the identical chemical structure. Now, sometimes medicines are what are called salts, S-A-L-T, just as anything else, and so they they may have a cation that is linked slightly differently or an anion uh, slightly differently or whatever, but the actual drug itself is the same. So they don't have different uh, ingredients. The ingredient is good, and the ingredient has been tested to make sure the body handles it in the same way. That's why we can have confidence in them. Does anyone wish to add anything to that? Or? Okay. 
I always add that, ask that just in case anyone wants to add anything to it. And um, so we have another question, and this is for Dr. Um, for Dr. Saltz. Um, other than the cost factor, is there any advantage in taking generic drugs? I don't think there's either an advantage or disadvantage. The major uh, issue is simply one of cost. And uh, unless you're in a situation where uh, there is no cost difference and those are quite unusual, um, it simply seems unwise to uh, spend more money than you need to in your care because, unfortunately, we know that uh, it is going to be expensive to get your cancer properly taken care of. And, and let's remember that there are many drugs that are not available generically, and we're glad to have these drugs uh, uh, that come about that we're only where the patent life is still there, and when necessary, these drugs can be very useful. So we spend what we have to for these new drugs that cost a lot of money to develop, and that's great. But after the patent expires, why shouldn't we take advantage of, of that ability? So we have to pay the full price on um, name brand drugs when those are the only ones that are available. But once uh, generics are available, that's our opportunity to uh, to have, have some economic uh, pluses. And this might be a good time, actually, Stacey, just to comment a bit about the financial systems and copay foundations that exist um, for those people who actually, um, for whom the costs of their medications are really um, very difficult in, in terms of ma managing them. Could you say something about that, Stacey? Sure. So we certainly get a lot of calls into our Hopeline here at Cancer Care of patients that are having difficulty with the high cost of their copays for their various medications. So what we can help do is try to direct people to the various copayment foundations that exist for the purpose of hopefully alleviating some of those copayment costs. Um, cancer Care itself also has a copayment foundation here, um, and at any given time, we'll have some open funding based on your diagnosis. So I would always encourage people to consider copayment foundations if you're having difficulty with your medications. Um, there are definitely places that you can call and inquire about assistance. And as I said, if you'd like to call our, our Hopeline, we can help direct you either potentially to assistance here at Cancer Care if we have an open fund for your diagnosis or to the other copayment foundations. There's um, many of them. So, um, you know, there certainly can be resources out there if you're struggling with covering those copays. Thank you. Um, and there's a question from one of our online participants um, for Dr. Saltz. Um, are there uh, clinical trials for generic drugs? Do clinical trials for generic drugs differ from the usual trials? Uh, no, not really. Uh, if, uh, for example, I was going to do a clinical trial where patients were going to be treated with the drug Arenotecan, the brand name of that is Camptasar. You may be familiar with it by one or the other. Um, the clinical trial wouldn't specify which one of those would be necessary because they're considered to be virtually identical. Um, so uh, it, it, it wouldn't uh, impact in that way. Thank you. Right. Um, that's an important, a very important point to cover. Um, and um, so there is a question for another one from Dr. Growler. Um, 
so um, has there been a shortage of certain generic drugs? Um, and actually, as a follow-up, there was a question like that. Um, um, how do I know if there is a good supply of a generic drug before starting treatment? Um, well, it's a good question. Uh, so um, what is – so – uh, it, it sometimes becomes such that the uh, name brand drug is hardly used anymore because, as Dr. Saltz has pointed out and everyone else has agreed, uh, the generic drugs are so similar. So it may be that the original manufacturer that, who started to make the drug 20, 25 years ago no longer is making it. So then generic companies say, great, we can make this, and there may be two, three, four, seven uh, versions of it, but in certain other instances, there are not. And as soon as and and uh, uh, our pharmacists can perhaps uh, relate to this, uh, sometimes when there's only one manufacturer or a couple, there may be shortages. And so then we work very hard to um, to uh, acquire those. So we don't begin treatments when uh, when there isn't enough drug. That doesn't happen. But it is possible that during uh, a time there can be a shortage, which is always temporary, but uh, we work very hard in doing so. And we're not pleased when these shortages occur, but periodically they do so, and the job of many of the hospital pharmacists is to uh, work very hard to see uh, to get those supplies. If I could elaborate on that further, um, in, in my capacity running the pharmacy committee here, uh, I uh, oversee dealing with these shortages. Um, I wouldn't want anyone to misunderstand that you are more vulnerable to a shortage if you choose to be on a generic versus a brand drug. That's simply not the case. What happens when there's a shortage is the drug is missing, whether it's the brand name or the generic, uh, because if the generic were not available, but a brand name of the same thing were available, we wouldn't call that a shortage. Um, so uh, you don't compromise availability of your own drug supply by being on a, a generic versus a brand name. And we have had uh, shortages of brand name drugs as well. We had a situation a number of years ago where a particular brand named chemotherapy agent was only made at one site and the FDA uh, uh, had problems with their manufacturing and forced them to stop, and the drug was unavailable. And in fact, the uh, fallback position, which wound up being a rescue for many of our patients, was that uh, we were able to identify a, a generic manufacturer in India that was making a, a virtually identical product that the FDA rapidly uh, reviewed and permitted into the country, and, and that solved the problem. Um, so uh, the, the issue of drug shortage is, is a complex one based on uh, the, the need to assure that everything that is available to patients has uh, the standards and safety that we've all come to expect and demand, uh, but uh, you don't compromise or, or put yourself at greater risk for exposure to a, a shortage by making a decision of brand versus generic drug. Excellent. And Mr. Besser, do you want to comment as well? Yes, I would agree with both of our, our physicians and what they've said and, and just go on to add that I think it's the importance here is that the FDA is holding these generic and brand manufacturers to good manufacturing practice 
And when we see these shortages, they can be from a, just a shortage of raw materials. They could be a shortage because of a recall that's put into place because there was a violation of good manufacturing or a question of a potential violation. So these shortages in some cases are occurring because the FDA is being so protective. And, and as they've said, also we, we work very hard kind of behind the scenes to try to procure product from every possible um, source that we can to keep people on treatment. And I think most uh, cancer centers, most places that treat, um, treat patients for cancer have people in place to make sure they're able to get these products and they're using them in, in the most appropriate patients. Thank you. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've been outstanding. I really have an outstanding uh, team of speakers today. I uh, thank you. And I also want to thank all of you who've been asking such great questions online. What a very informed and very great audience asking these terrific questions, which give our speakers a chance to elaborate further on the points raised by your questions. And I also want to thank all of you who have been listening and may have questions that we did not get to. I know there are many of you who have questions that we didn't get to answer. So for those of you, I just want to say a few words. First of all, of course, your healthcare team is a wonderful place and always the place, the go-to place, because they know you the best. But I know many of you like to get information sometimes in other ways as well. So we'd like you to go to what we consider to be credible or very, uh, very credible um, sites. And places to call for information. So the one that I often recommend on these programs is the National Cancer Institute. Uh, they certainly host all, house all of the information, um, most up-to-date information that you could possibly need. And so I'm going to give you phone numbers, but we're going to also, when you get your evaluation, probably tomorrow or the next day, all the resources that we mentioned to you today or any resources that we want you to have, you'll be getting an addition. You'll get those as well. So, but the phone number for the National Cancer Institute is 1-800-422-6237. And what's, um, they also have um, a website, www.cancer.gov, and they have a live chat feature, which is awfully nice because you can post your question on the live chat feature, and one of their information specialists will really do their very best to answer your question, get you all the information you need from the database of the National Cancer Institute, which really houses a lot of the information about cancer. So um, also many of you are going to major centers, cancer centers that actually have websites and information or people that you can call for additional information as well. So just really do take advantage of all of those resources. And of course, your pharmacist, um, your oncologist, you know, all the people treating you, um, the oncology nurse, the oncology social worker, the whole team of people are there for you. Um, now, um, most importantly, as we conclude our program today, I don't want any of you to think that you're alone in coping with, uh, with cancer. And you're now part of the Cancer Care Umbrella of Services, and you can call us at any time or visit our website. And um, in addition to Cancer Care, of course, we do collaborate with many other organizations, and you're going to get all of their resources as well so that you have many places to call. So when, in a moment when you are feeling like you have a question, a concern, of course, your healthcare team is your go-to place because they know you best. But you certainly, all of the organizations we partner with and collaborate with are very reputable organizations for you to get information as well. Again, I want to thank you for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes today's workshop, and you may all disconnect. Everyone have a great day.